Kyle Sondland and Herbert Konings are founding partners of Security Token Group. All opinions expressed by them or guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not represent the views of Security Token Group or its subsidiaries. You should not take any opinion expressed on the show as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow any investment strategy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome to the Security Token Show, episode 32. I'm your host, Hurry Konings. Joining with me is Kyle Sondland. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Episode 32. This week, we're going to be talking about non-accredited participation in security token offerings leveraging Rule 144, which Rule 144, if you're unaware, enables non-accredited investor access into private securities. Originally, we saw this with T0, which was the only one. They kind of paved the way leveraging this exemption. And now there's some recent updates with Lottery.com, which we're going to get to later. But before we do that, we love to kick off our show with our Company of the Week segment. We then follow that off with the industry news, then going into STO updates, covering the market activity in the secondary market, and then finally ending with our main topic, little thought leadership action, and then we'll close it out. So, Herwig, without further ado, I'd love to hear from you. What is your Company of the Week this week for episode 32? We had a lot of great news, as you're going to hear later, so it was a tough one. But I'm going to go ahead and give my award to somebody that I think has been pretty quiet to date, but they've secretly been making big moves in the security token industry. I'm talking, I'm referring to Blockstation. Now, Blockstation is a Toronto-based exchange technology provider. And despite being in the Great White North, they actually managed to sign up both national stock exchanges from Caribbean islands of Barbados and Jamaica. Both countries are looking to ramp up their exchanges to support digital securities. And the company, Blockstation, announced last week in partnership with the Jamaica Stock Exchange that they have built a fast-track disclosure filing process for companies hoping to list security tokens on the Jamaican Stock Exchange. And this is a strong vote of confidence for the Jamaican Stock Exchange, which hopes to go live later this year with tokenized IPOs. And obviously great for Blockstation that they can reproduce this IP for other exchange platforms. I think this is going to be a huge announcement for the industry because this means that 2020 is really going to be a year where a lot of these international stock exchanges start to offer globalized tokenized IPOs. And Blockstation obviously earns my company of the week for being the technology developer to help make that possible. So congrats to them. Keep up the great work. Congratulations, Blockstation. I think that they've also been working with other countries as well. They're kind of trying to create a scalable solution potentially with with a bunch of these jurisdictions. And that's fantastic news. They're doing great work. And I cannot wait to see them as they expand this operation and and as they can help get the Jamaica Stock Exchange off the ground. That's exciting. We had a great episode on on launching an IPO that's global uh, a little while back. You know, now they're making it possible. So congratulations again. Now, Kyle, who is your company of the week? Well, this week you may have seen the news, but Harbor, which is a known issuance platform in the space, was acquired this week by BitGo. And so they BitGo, let's talk about them a little bit. They're a crypto custody business that they made the headlines from acquiring Harbor. It was an undisclosed fee to, to actually make that purchase. And, and so Harbor was, was founded in the early days of the security token space, and it was a company that built a lot of hype for being an issuance platform. I think originally they were trying to focus on real estate, and then they started to pivot in after that. And 
after they had a few projects that they, they really tried to launch with that didn't seem to be incredibly successful, I'm not exactly sure of the details, whether it was regulatory or, or investor demand or, or what the news was there, but they, they were unable to get an offering off the ground over the last couple of years. But they were able to acquire a broker-dealer license as well as the transfer agent license we've discussed in the past. Um, so they had a lot of great licenses and, and, and were just kind of trying to figure out how to put those pieces together. And so now BitGo comes into the fray. They are a, a crypto custody business, very well established in, in storing and custodying crypto tokens, is now entering into the security token ecosystem. And now by acquiring Harbor are equipped with a broker-dealer license as well. Uh, so the company really could add to the buy side of the space, providing proper brokerage services through fundraising and with their existing custody business. So while the acquisition itself isn't publicly available in terms of what the price was, it does seem like they were maybe able to get a good deal based off the fact that Harbor has kind of been struggling to get a product launched. And so now they're an immediate leader in the custody and investment space for security tokens. And so it'll be very interesting to see how they continue to build on that opportunity and whether they decide to focus on the secondary market or if they're going to keep working with the, the primary issuances. So I'm very, very excited to see where BitGo goes from here. And I know that they're going to have a positive impact on the industry. So for that, they are my company of the week. Amazing, huge moves. I don't know whether you want to call it consolidation. I know they had mutual backers, but at the end of the day, this puts Bitco in a prime position to really start making some big moves with both tokenization, custody, and a lot of the other licenses that you just referred to to be able to pretty much do anything. Are they going to become a one-stop shop like Harbor was originally starting to be, or are they going to start to focus on something specific? We'll see. We'll be letting you know on the show for sure as things occur. But with that, I think we're ready to jump into our new segment. Lead it off, are we? And we're going to start off in Australia, down under, where last week the Australian Securities Exchange announced that they are preparing to launch the new blockchain-based platform that they've been working on for several years now in July this year. The exchange was one of the first to adopt blockchain, contemplating the move several years ago as they were reviewing their outdated chess system, as they call it. And the exchange tapped U.S. enterprise blockchain firm Digital Asset to help build out the technology. The firm itself actually ended up raising $35 million from the Australian Stock Exchange, so that money was clearly helping them power and develop out what's needed for the ASX. And speaking on the matter, the CEO of the stock exchange, Dominic Stevens, said that the new system provides the entire industry with a more streamlined alternative, touting specifically the improved clearing and settlement times that the system boasts, among other benefits. So very cool to see yet another national stock exchange embrace blockchain, embrace tokenized securities. Really love to see that trend happening more and more this year. Don't sleep on Australia. They they were very active in the crypto scene and blockchain. They're very forward focused. They're progressive, and their their jurisdiction and regulators do seem to be very progressive in terms of how they're thinking. So this is a great opportunity for Australia to continue to cement itself as a, a real financial player moving forward. Absolutely, can't wait to see more on how the launch goes in July. And meanwhile, if we go a little bit more north, we actually saw that we don't just have exchanges touting the promise of blockchain, but we also have central banks with the latest national bank signing on as the Bank of Korea. 
Korea Central Bank started exploring the technology in a proof of concept in 2019 to track bonds on a distributed ledger by issuing state bonds. And the institution is reportedly now seeking a dedicated vendor to help develop blockchain solutions just like Digital Asset did for the ASX or Blockstation is doing for the Jamaican Stock Exchange. So the big question is, Kyle, who will the Bank of Korea choose? I expect to see the trend, though, that we see. We, you know, we saw the World Bank do this last year. We saw several other uh, private banks also lead the charge on tokenizing bonds and issuing debt products. So I imagine we're going to see a lot more of that happening. We also know that the Central Bank of China is also exploring similar efforts. So we'll see you know, who else follows that, that trend there. And going back to the States, we also saw some news from Libra which has been quiet since the backlash from the U.S. government last year, I'd say. But in this announcement, we saw online e-commerce giant Shopify become a member of the Libra organization. This is definitely, I'd say, a big win for Libra. So Shopify will be able to now offer hundreds of thousands of websites around the world to accept the Libra stablecoin as an option for payment by really what is probably tens of millions, if not more, customers uh, available online. So definitely, I'd say a, a big step forward, but still may seem a little bit like jazz for now, since most of us are eagerly awaiting updates about the technology being released, which is supposed to be in theory later this year. So we're keeping an eye on all things Libra, but that's really just the latest there. Shopify is huge. This is actually a much bigger acquisition or addition than it may seem on the surface, because I think Shopify has a very strong business model that could work with Libra as well. So I'm excited to see that one too. I think with, with PayPal leaving, right, uh, it's, this is a big, big add-on for, for them for sure. For Definitely sure. an e-commerce giant. Next up, we also saw some infrastructure companies raise up money to, to continue to grow. We first are, are seeing a custody provider, Copper, announcing an $8 million investment from three European VCs, Target Global, MMC Ventures, and Local Globe. The UK-based company will use the funding to develop regional client-facing operations in key geographies around the world, including North America and Asian, as it does see itself as an international service provider. And it will also accelerate the launch of new products that give their institutional clients more investment options, presumably also including security tokens. So great for them. It's a nice big Series A there. And we also saw Agora Innovation, which is what they're calling in a pre-Series A, raising 750,000 euros to help expand. The, la the round actually being led by EOS's venture arm. The firm will focus more on the Asian market as they expand further into Europe. And supposedly a token sale is expected to be announced next quarter. So congrats to both companies. Exciting to see more infrastructure being invested in. And also last Wednesday, we saw a pretty big announcement where the Paxos Settlement Service went live, allowing for the simultaneous exchange of cash and a select number of U.S.-listed securities on Paxos's own private version of Ethereum. The move, the company claims, gives them bragging rights for the first live blockchain-based settlement of U.S. equities. So supposedly, it's also the first time since the formation of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation that U.S. equities are settling in an automated manner in an outside system. So all of those things, pretty cool. In a move to offer these solutions without the right licenses, the company asked for a no-action letter to the SEC a little while back, which they received, allowing them to provide clearing and settlement in this pilot, which involved Credit Suisse and Sociata Generale. And on the success of this pilot, which 
is limiting the, the firm from the number of participants and transactions that are allowed to participate. The trust company aims to apply to the SEC in 2020 to become a fully registered clearing agency, which, by the way, only seven such licenses are currently out there. For those of you who are curious about the technology workings, as I mentioned, it's on their own private blockchain network that's a fork off of the Ethereum code base. So they are not using any sort of private uh, blockchain such as Quorum. Cash has to be held in Paxos custody accounts for delivery versus payment and settlement finally to happen. The process essentially tokenizes the cash on reserve in the same way Paxos handles its Pax stablecoin. So Paxos is making big moves. They're, they're clearly having a successful pilot, and I'm excited to, to see them move forward You know, based on the fact that everything seems to be going well, I, I'm sure no doubt that this company will, will become the eighth uh, company to get a, a clearing license. So very, very cool. Uh, next up, we, we have some competition in the U.S. continuing to heat up because we have another issuance platform, one from Europe, Equisafe, uh, based in Paris, announcing a U.S. launch for the firm. So the launch will occur at an event called French Tech Night. Uh, a blockchain edition, which is going to be hosted on March 3rd in New York City. The company also mentioned that several more STOs are going to launch in the coming months, so we'll be on the lookout for Equisafe STOs. Love that. I'm sure we'll get your coverage, Kyle, when they when they come out. You better believe it. And also in the latest on the Securities.io interview series, Rebecca Stoner interviews SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, who is seen as the most pro-blockchain of the five commissioners. We mentioned last week that she came out with a safe harbor draft allowing to help ICOs and the like create some kind of an environment where they can reach decentralization and not have to worry about uh, any kind of uh, SEC action. And in the interview, actually, I think it contains a lot of great info, including the fact that she doesn't differentiate much between STOs and ICOs, and actually that she simply views each on a case-by-case basis, which makes sense. She also mentioned something that we're very interested in when it comes to the accredited investor definition changes, that they will mostly be focused on entity changes Mm -hmm. right now, unless the public is more vocal about changes to the individual definition. Mm -hmm. We've been very active talking to the SEC, getting the community to contribute as well, but anybody can still reach out and give feedback to the SEC and mention they'd love to see changes around that to make it more inclusive as opposed to just a net worth test base. And finally, she also mentioned that she's very hopeful that her draft safe harbor bill will have legs, uh, which I think for sure you know, forces uh, some structure and clarity for the, the U.S. crypto market as well as even the digital securities market. So you know, I'm definitely a supporter of that. Absolutely. She's been very vocal online with many different people responding, engaging with the community, having conversations. It's, it's great to have a face, not necessarily the face of the SEC, but, but a face of someone that, that is influential there and to get some feedback. I mean, even just that interview itself gives a ton of context that we did not have prior to this conversation. And uh, I really want to take a minute just to commend Hester Pierce and what she's done she's so far. certainly the champion of the five. And uh, she even garnered the nickname Crypto Mom for <laughs> her you know, positive support on the industry. So you know, definitely great work that she's doing. And last but not least, I also want to include an article submitted by user Rashem, who, who found an article by STO Box 
written on February 4th here that gives a great overview of the Cayman Islands digital securities landscape. So if you're exploring issuing an STO outside your own jurisdiction, this may be a great article for you to check out and review. It covers everything uh, from legal landscape to investment vehicles and structures you can use to the tax regime and how regulators treat securities. So definitely a a great article. Thanks for submitting that uh, there, Ross. And of course, we have our event section. Other than the French Tech Night, the only other event we are aware of is a Security Token Realize San Francisco event on May 28th. You can learn more about any of the news topics that I discuss in our segment here or anything we discuss on the podcast, really, by clicking on the links related into the about description of wherever you're listening to or by finding it out directly from the source, stomarket.com, our news section where you can go and submit and see where all the latest content is at, or, of course, the market section where you can get all this fine pricing data that Kyle is going to talk about shortly. So with that, Kyle... I'd love to pass it on to you and get more about the latest STOs. Great rundown. That's some really good news this week. We really have have kicked off 2020 in a a strong way. And I think that some of our predictions of of the first half of the year really being that that final development stage and then with the second half being extremely strong looks to be pretty spot on from from what we see so far. So totally agree. Things are looking great. From the new STOs, new STO updates, the first one is an update on a, a former security token offering that is now on secondary markets. We, we hinted at it before and we're going to catch it later in the episode, but Lottery.com is now available for purchase by non-accredited investors inside of the U.S. So anyone inside of the U.S. can now buy Lottery.com. It is the only security token on open finance that you can do this with. It's now the second token that you can buy as a non-accredited investor, that that first one being T0, as I mentioned. And so it's also not clear exactly which international investors can participate. They may have done a Reg S offering, in which case accredited international investors can participate, excuse me, but I'm not exactly sure on whether non-accredited European investors can participate. I'm going to guess no, but you need to do your own research. And certainly if you create an account there and, and give your KYC, you will have the proper restrictions or or they will be lifted if you're able to buy. So definitely go check that out. If you're, if you're a U.S. investor, anyone in the U.S. can participate and buy these tokens. So that's exciting. It's really, really exciting. We'll get into that a little Super. bit more later. Moving on to new STOs. The, the first one that I have today is a tokenized office building, commercial real estate in Connecticut. And this is by Reino, R-E-I-N-N-O, which is a US-based issuance platform. We've mentioned them before on the podcast, fresh off their announcement of their tokenized real estate fund. And so they actually just announced a second tokenization, this time of a commercial office building in Connecticut. And so that real estate fund, if you remember, is actually a two, two security token model where they had some debt and some equity. This one is the tokenization of a commercial office building, but it is different than how you might expect. We're used to commercial real estate being tokenized similar to the realty model where the token holders are given the equity value in the property and then are given their dividends based off of the rent. But in this case, with Reno, the owners are actually not planning to sell any of the equity in the building. Instead, they're actually just using the tokenizations as loan collateral. And so Reno has a proprietary risk assessment model, which allows them to lend money against this commercial real estate. And so now they're expanding that with tokenization. 
And so in the traditional model, borrowing against real estate can be expensive as they note in their announcement. It's also time consuming and frustrating, especially when dealing with all of the intermediaries in between, including banks, lawyers, title companies, and more. And so as they say with Rando, the whole process is handled through their platform. And so I love this, man. Rano continues to innovate in the space. Now they're offering collateralized loans to property managers through tokenization. And I think it's a great example of an opportunity for liquidity without actually requiring the public secondary market. A lot of people think about liquidity just as an investor being able to sell their shares on a secondary market. But this is an opportunity for an asset holder with a relatively illiquid asset and no necessary interest in selling the property to actually get cash now that they can then use in terms of a line of credit um, on that property that they own. So loan collateralization, leveraging tokenization and smart contracts drastically reduces the costs and it enables asset transparency as well as a systematic debt collection process all of which will enable potentially more firms to raise funds and, and potentially real drastically lower the cost of capital. So this is a tremendous use case for tokenization. Herwig, I'd love to hear what you think. You're, you're the, uh, you've, you've talked a lot about loans and debt on the blockchain before. This is pretty exciting. Yeah, this is a great way. I completely agree. A great use case for tokenization. And as you mentioned, a model for liquidity without necessarily having to, to sell the equity in the, the portfolio directly, whether it's real estate, whether it's a portfolio of assets or, or equity in a company itself, you can leverage that and loan against it and collateralize. And this is a great way to do that with tokenization. So uh, you know, I think Reno, as you mentioned, they're coming out in big waves here, uh, and I'm excited for, for them to keep up the good work. And they are U.S.-based from what I, I can see, so that's interesting as well. But that may be different branches or whatever. This is certainly out of Connecticut, so very, very interesting. First property that I know in Connecticut that's also been tokenized, so it's super cool. We're starting to see, you know, we got, we got Connecticut, we have the, the Colorado, we have the Detroit tokens, we have, you know, the right. U.S. real estate markets coming to life. It is. It's, it's fascinating. And, again, this is another great example of, just because there's there's not a token on secondary markets or just because in this case there's nothing nothing at all doesn't mean that there's not great use cases of tokenization that are being leveraged all around the world whether you see it or not some of them may be institutional and more private they're not even really going public with it at all some may be going public like this one but they're actually keeping the asset privately held this technology what we've been preaching is being leveraged all around the world in varying amounts of publicity, just as it, as it continues to scale. So it's very, very exciting. Congratulations to Reno. Second off, we have the launch of VinX from Venito Capital. It's their first STO, and it's going to be launching on March 2nd. Venito Capital Management is launching VinX, which is their security token that's backed by French Fine Wine and a vineyard investment fund, all of their vineyard investment fund assets, which is worth around 32 million euros. And so last year with the fund that was, I guess, a traditional fund, their 2019 return on investment was 48%, which is fantastic. With this security token, they're aiming for a 5% return each quarter, which including compound interest is around 21% annual. And so it's an ERC token with more details in launch coming in March. So this is a, another exciting asset. You're talking about a vineyard investment fund that's done 50% last year. This year, they're launching another token to give investors access. And if they can get that 21%, I mean, that's 
that's a, a crazy great investment opportunity for people all around the world. So if you'd like to check that out or see more information, please do your own research. This is not investment advice. Check out vinxcoin.com, V-I-N-X-Coin.com, and they will have more information there once the announcement goes live. They're doing some great work over there uh, at Vinx. It's a great use case, again, to focus on a new asset like wines and vineyards and things like that in order to be able to expose to that and their platform makes that possible i believe they're also backed by medici ventures mm-hmm. uh, so, you know there's more validation so really great and looking forward to, to how that sto ends up doing i think it could be very successful so hopefully we'll have more information for you um i guess march 2nd maybe is before next episode or maybe March 1st is next episode. I'm not sure. So we may have it for next episode or the following on, on more information there. Um, and I'm also trying to get in touch with their team. So moving forward into the market update, let's talk about some, some secondary traded tokens. First off, we have our STO market cap. This is how we kind of judge the tone of the market, the health of the market, if you will. And it's unfortunately down to 56.7 million from about 62 million last week. So it's down about 10%, unfortunately, over the last week. And I think the reason is is twofold. Obviously, usually with these market cap, we have the market dominance from T0. So the the token did experience a a very sharp drop on Wednesday, where it fell almost 25% from $1.70 to $1.25. And so that's obviously not great, but the drop did recover slightly through the end of the week, ending at $1.50 on Friday afternoon. Remember, because T0 only operates between Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, unlike other the other exchanges, Open Finance and Uniswap, which are 24-7. So with T0, it closed on Friday down uh, in, in the week, but it's holding that, that $1.50, $1.75 range. I think that today it's, it's somewhere around there as well, being Monday. And so the volumes are also consistent. They're, they're averaging around 12,500 daily volume. So, I mean, it's, it's doing good trading. It's, it's hanging in there. The other you know, reason why we saw the market come down, because that wasn't very drastic from T0 based off of the recovery, was a huge sell-off in BCAP. There was about $20,000 in BCAP tokens sold. I think it was about 16,000 BCAP tokens or something like that. And it actually slid the price down from $1.90 where it was holding to that, that $1.20 price that we're seeing now. And so that's, that's understandable due to slippage just because a $20,000 order that's just kind of sold right away is, is naturally going to collapse the price. Um, but fortunately with BCAP, they, they do publish their quarterly NAVs and we should be expecting their, their newest one in the next month or so. And so we'll be able to see how that fund is performing, which will then give a good idea of whether it's now undervalued or if it's properly valued based off of traditional metrics. So there's there's a potential opportunity here for investment if you're confident in their portfolio. Again, not investment advice. Finally, we have new tokens. No new tokens, but I also thought it was, meant, it was worth reiterating that LDCC Lottery.com is now trading to retail investors. And based off of their performance since opening to retail investors, we've actually only seen $100 worth of tokens been purchased. So it doesn't seem like there's a ton of investor interest. We're talking maybe four days or five days since it's gone live. So you'd think that if there was anybody that was waiting, chomping at the bit for the opportunity, they probably would have purchased at this point. Um, So unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a ton of investor demand for Lottery.com despite the opportunity to purchase. The token still sits at that $0.07 range that it's been at for the last couple of months. 
Too bad, but not surprising, Kyle. At the end of the day, there isn't a lot of information about lottery out there, and there hasn't been a lot of news. So to, to think that there would be a real drive uh, isn't necessarily correlated to anything other than the fact that it is now accessible. So we'll yeah. see if that trend changes. You know, it's unfortunate. I think that that, that token especially, but, but I really I think OFN needs to do a better job of disclosures with a lot of these things. I mean, even their announcement for retail trading for Lottery.com included a quote from Lottery from 2018 in a press release. So they, they didn't even get a, a recent um, quote from the founding team. I don't know where that founding team, what they're up to. If the, There's not much activity through social media or anything like that regarding Lottery.com. So I'm hoping that, that they can kind of get some new information out because as you've mentioned, I mean, without anything new, there's, there's no information on the charity that they're supposed to be raising for. Um, and so I think that, that the investors that are currently invested in the token are probably owed some, some addressing from, from the team and what their plans are for 2020. But that's besides the point. That's about it for me on the market update. Great. Well, with that, I think we can move on to our main topic where we'll be discussing you know, a, a deep dive, if you will, on Rule 144 and how some of these tokens are trading in non-accredited investors. Uh, specifically, it's because, Kyle, you recently published uh, a fantastic article giving a, a primer on how Rule 144 works in the U.S. So, but before we dive into that topic, can you tell me a little bit, maybe and as well to the audience here, what inspired you to do the research in the first place I know there's a little bit of story here. so Yeah, well, well first off, I, I do want to note that we're going to be talking about Rule 144 and private securities regulations. The reality is that I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer, Herwig. We are not lawyers. This is not legal advice. If you're going through this process, you absolutely need to speak with counsel to figure out the proper ways to manage this process. Do not take my word as law. This is just for entertainment purposes and I'm just an independent person doing research and trying to make sense of of everything I could find through the interwebs. So definitely go check that out and do do your own research on that stuff as well. But I got interested in this because you know I, I have a background in, in equities and, and the public markets, and so I'm certainly well aware of, of what that can do for for an investment opportunity. And as, as someone that's been tracking the security token secondary market, I was fascinated to see how successful T0 has been since they launched their, their Rule 144 exemption allowing for retail participation in their T0 or TZROP token. And we actually have saw, I think, a 30 or 40 percent volume increase after retail investors were able to participate. They're now still able to participate. And T0 is the most successful security token in terms of trading volume that we've seen. And so it was a fascinating idea of, of how this Rule 144 exemption could be leveraged. And so when we kind of asked around our circles and, and people in the know, we, we kind of had an idea or, or figured that T0 was able to leverage this because they have their overstock.com public company that files for disclosures, that has to get audited yearly for, for public markets, and that because they had had all this additional transparency, they were able to leverage this exemption for their investors. And that's kind of, we, we just took that at face value. That sounded like it made sense. That's what we could interpret. 
And then, just last week, seemingly out of the blue, OFN announces that Lottery.com is now available for retail investors. And so this really started to spark my imagination because those original thoughts that we had around it maybe requiring that public company were actually proven to be false because OFN is not a public company. Lottery.com is certainly not a public company, and their issue or securitize is not as well. So there's there's no company that would be able to take that that agency over those those disclosures. So it had to be something else. And so I went back to the drawing board and took a look at what Rule 144 really was and what it said to see how T0 was able to leverage that and to see if that had any effect potentially on OFN and, and how they could maybe leverage it for their own issuers. So that's kind of the background here. It's important information. I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. Bring it down for us. Great. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, I appreciate the intro. I actually posted a full Medium article on this. So if you want to read along or read in detail, definitely go check that out. It's on our page. But basically what Rule 144 is, and this is, and I quote from the SEC's website, Rule 144 provides an exemption and permits the public resale of restricted or controlled securities if a number of conditions are met. And so essentially what this is, is it's a separate set of rules that can allow you to resale your security or your restricted or controlled security to the public retail investors. And so essentially Reg D and Reg S, as we've talked about before, have rules you need to comply with. We covered all of that in the last episode, episode 31. And they have all kinds of rules in terms of how you onboard investors. Reg D focuses on investors based in the U.S. and Reg S focuses on those investors outside of the U.S. And both exemptions restrict access to U.S. non-accredited investors. And while Reg S does enable some non-accredited investors in certain countries, certainly U.S. investors from the non-accredited section are excluded. So this is a separate set of rules that potentially allows for an issuer to, or an exchange rather, to resell these securities to those retail U.S. investors, which in terms of the U.S. is about 92% of the U.S. population is non-accredited. It's only about the top 8% or so that are accredited investors in the U.S. So clearly this would be a huge draw for issuers to, and exchanges to increase volume and to, to boost their, their, their investor base. And so we mentioned there that it's a separate set of rules. But you have to have a certain, a certain number of conditions that you need to meet. And so let's dig into those really quickly. The first, the first three are pretty straightforward. They say, quote, how long the securities are held, the way in which they are sold, and the amount that can be sold at any time. And so when we dig into that, it really there's, there's a volume restriction for affiliates. And so they, they really go into a lot of detail on affiliates. And this is actually the interpretation that we were correct on by looking at, at companies that have to disclose. So if you're a company that is directly tied interest-wise to that private security, so if you're a separate business that has you know shared board of advisors or has a direct economic interest, whether through investment or, or any of these different pieces, if you have a formal relationship with this issuer, there are a lot of rules regarding how much you can trade. It's really only like 1% trading volume across a three-month period. There's also a few other pieces as well that, that you have to be very careful of. And so when we first read that piece, obviously that, that's not ideal because 1% of the trading volume to retail investors is, is not much at all, or, or of the market cap rather, or whatever, um, is not a lot at all. However, the next section of Rule 144 is really what brings the excitement because it lifts a lot of those potential barriers. And they say, quote, if you are not 
and have not been for at least three months an affiliate of the company issuing the securities and have held the restricted securities for at least one year, you can sell the securities without regard to the conditions in Rule 144 discussed above. If the issuer of the securities is subject to the Exchange Act reporting requirements and you have held the securities for at least six months, you may sell the securities as long as you satisfy the current public information condition. And essentially, the reason why I didn't cover a whole lot of those restrictions from Rule 144 is because this is the golden goose. This essentially says if you are not an affiliate with the company, if you're not directly tied and invested with the company or or working with them in a close matter based off the definition of affiliate, which I haven't had here, but it is in the article, as long as you're not an affiliate of that company and you've held the securities for at least one year, You can sell the securities without regard to the conditions in Rule 144 and can sell to retail investors, or at least that's how we interpret it. So basically what we're saying here is that Rule or Reg D or Reg S has their lockup periods, right? Reg D has a 12-month lockup period and Reg S has a six-month lockup period. At that point, they are then issued to shareholders and then potentially to the exchanges to then hold them in custody. At that point, if the exchange themselves holds it for 12 months, they are then able to sell those shares to retail investors based off of what we're interpreting here in Rule 144. And this is a game changer because it essentially allows any exchange to be able to provide liquidity to retail investors of private securities as long as they're following these rules and they're not directly affiliated with the issuer. And so this, when I read this, when I really dug into it, it made a whole lot of sense in how OFN is able to do it. But really, this is a game changer for the industry because, again, this is not legal advice and maybe getting legal counsel will be important because this could be an incorrect interpretation. But based off of what I've read directly from the letter of the law, it seems like all of the restrictions of Rule 144 involve affiliates of of this issuer. And as long as you're not an affiliate of the issuer and you've held the securities for a year, you're able to sell them how how you see fit. And this is an opportunity that potentially OFN could take advantage of for all five of its its security tokens. It also could be an exemption that's leveraged for future exchanges to provide retail access to many different security tokens and potentially all security tokens because I don't see any exemptions here um, regarding specific assets that don't fall under this rule. So it's incredibly exciting. I read this. I got very excited. I pumped out a long article. I was psyched about it. Herwig, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you did a great job with this. You, you summed it up very nicely at the end of the day. I interpret Rule 144 as a way for private issuers to gain liquidity for uh, the outside public. You know, it's not a useful way if you're, as you mentioned, an affiliate or involved in the company to get liquidity as a traditional IPO, if you will, would after the, the six month. No insider period. dumping. Exactly. <laughs> but it is a great way to then create liquidity for the overall product, uh, the securities product. So uh, I'm excited for sure to see this become a more actively used marketplace uh, method for liquidity. Uh, but, you know, it's, I think what we're seeing with T0 and OFN is, is bleeding edge. You know, it's, it's, uh, this is all happening. As we know, this is a niche securities part of the law. And because there isn't a lot of precedent and not a lot of information out there, 
you know, we're, we're going to see how, how the interpretations and the like get used. So it's exciting. This breakdown, I think, is going to help a lot of people, Kyle, to, to see and explore, hey, should I, can I, and should I be using Rule 144 as part of my plans for, for my STO's liquidity strategy? So absolutely, thank you for putting that together. There is one other condition that I, I, I'd left out there um, that is a requirement to comply by Rule 144, and that's that the private securities legend must be removed from the certificate. And so this process is completed by a transfer agent on behalf of the marketplace, not the issuer. So the marketplace or open finance, the T0 in exchange or ATS, the marketplace has to have the issuer's approval, at which time they go to a transfer agent and the transfer agent essentially removes the legend. From issuance platforms that I've spoken with privately, it does seem like this process is incredibly easy but they just need to get the issuer's, the issuer's approval for that. And then the transfer agent is then able to do this, which Herwig really sparked my imagination. We saw just a couple months ago that all of these issuance platforms kind of at the same exact time seemed to get transfer agent licenses, which was exciting, but we weren't exactly sure what the main reason was for that. We were we defined it for sure, but there's there's you know a lot of it did kind of seem out of the blue, right? And so this is another opportunity for them to to leverage this, and, and it seems like Securitize is putting that into effect with Lottery.com already with Open Finance. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's out of the blue. You know, the transfer agent move makes a lot of sense for a lot of other. Reasons reasons as well for Reg A+, for managing large-scale securities. We cover that very well in an episode where we talk about transfer agents as our main topic. Uh, I can tell you that is episode 11. But um, ultimately, this is definitely another nice cherry on top of why you would want to have a transfer agent. And as you pointed out, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, in a traditional sense, the exchange could go and work with any transfer agent. But because you're a security token leveraging a protocol and a, and a distributed ledger technology, it will probably be pretty difficult to go to an outside transfer agent that has no control on this. You're mm-hmm. going to have to work with the issuance technology platform, which right. makes sense to then say for sure why, why they all want to get a transfer agent license. So definitely another interesting tidbit from your research. I agree. Absolutely. And that's about it. I'm excited for Rule 144, excited to see what the possibilities allow for here. But it does seem like it's not just Reg A that's the holy grail for non-accredited. Potentially, there's a way to do it that doesn't take quite as long, that isn't quite as costly as what we've seen already from Blockstack or from props with you now, or you now with props, um, that, that Reg A plus, it just doesn't seem like it's a, the immediate answer right now. And this is potentially an opportunity to provide that liquidity to retail investors. Yeah, I totally agree, especially because Reg A plus is a primary offering exemption. So it helps with secondary liquidity afterwards. But at the end of the day, this is the real game changer, Rule 144, when it comes to secondary transactions. And it's so, retroactive, which right. is cool. Like you can apply it back on those Reg D and Reg S's. You don't need to file it at the same time of issuance. So it doesn't necessarily antiquate former offerings, if you will. And if you're an issuer, you're doing a security token, you should put this on your radar. Absolutely. Hopefully Kyle's article helps. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast episode and hopefully we'll catch you again on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.